Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. It's been two years of taking extraordinary measures to defend ourselves against a novel virus. So it's easy for our human brains to lose track of all of the ordinary things that can contribute to illness, disability, and death on a normal day. Who can we turn to when we're feeling unwell or want to take steps to prevent illness? Why, our family doctor, of course. Hmm, but not every Canadian has a primary care provider or the ability to access one when they need it. That's why we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Danielle Martin, the chair of the largest academic department of family medicine found at the University of Toronto. We'll discuss how we can help ensure that everyone has access to the primary care they need. Danielle is an active family physician whose clinical work has ranged from comprehensive family medicine in rural and remote communities to maternity care. Danielle regularly provides expertise and formal advice to lawmakers nationally and abroad. She holds a master's of public policy and teaches health policy and health system leadership to trainees from undergraduate to PhD level. And if you haven't read it yet, you really should read her national best-selling book, Better Now, Six Big Ideas to Improve the Health of All Canadians. There are no easy fixes to the primary care access problem, but there's also no better way to improve our health. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Martin, and welcome to iBrisk. Thanks for having me, Jody. Please call me Danielle. So Danielle, tell us, like, why doesn't every Canadian have access to a primary care provider? Oh, it is uh, such a complex issue. I wish I could say uh, that uh, the, the problem is solely a problem of supply. Uh, and therefore, if we trained more family doctors, more people would have access, but it turns out to be really complicated. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we probably do have too few family physicians, especially given that newer graduates coming out into the system uh, are working differently, probably smarter um, in some ways, but tend to carry uh, smaller low patient loads in their practices. And so to replace a retiring physician, you probably need more new graduates. We also have major problems of distribution. So Family physicians don't necessarily live in or choose to practice in the places where uh, shortages are most deeply felt, whether that's in rural areas, uh, in Indigenous communities, in inner city urban environments, um, uh, in uh, neighborhoods with uh, large proportions of newcomers. There's also the issue about accessibility. So many Canadians will say, well, on paper, I have a family physician or a primary care team, but it's hard for me to get in to see that person or that team. And so thinking about how we organize primary care practices in order to make that access feel real, uh, all of those things are uh, contributors. And we now see some potentially disconcerting evidence about the number of new graduates from medical school choosing comprehensive family medicine as a discipline, a uh, throwback to the early 90s when uh, we had a real problem in that regard. And so I think we're at a watershed moment because we cannot 
rebuild our healthcare systems in Canada uh, without a strong foundation in primary care. And so we're going to have to look at each of these elements if we're going to get it right. So just to be clear, it's not, oh, Canada is a big country and we're really spread out. And that's why we have this problem. I mean, sure, that's part of it. It's, you know, it's a it's a complex tangle of contributors. Uh, but the but, you know, the bottom line is, if you look at that big spread out country, um, probably the notion that everyone is going to have a family physician whose office they can uh, easily walk to um, is uh, is not realistic. And so we need to uh, be smart about the way that we use virtual care, the way that we use teams, the way that we use hospitals in rural communities as back up to primary care and integration with primary care, like all of these things are going to be necessary. The bottom line is that the, the that Canadian knee-jerk reaction of, oh, we've got a long wait time for this problem. We should, you know, buy more MRI machines or train more family physicians. If the, the feeling is a feeling of shortage and, and therefore the knee-jerk reaction is increase the supply, if only it were so simple, it turns out that increasing the supply does not always get us what we need in terms of access when it comes to healthcare services in Canada or anywhere else in the world. Now, at least in Ontario, which I know best, there's been some experimentation with family health teams. We saw you know, a real surge in virtual care during the pandemic. Is it just that we need more of that? Or are we just not getting to the heart of what, what you describe as a really complex and, and tangled uh, set of causes? I mean, actually, Jody, this is a question of governance, something that you uh, know quite a lot about. And the reality is that we uh, cannot continue to put more models out into our healthcare systems if we don't have any uh, system to put them out into. So as an educator, I'm fond of saying we can train family docs. But if we don't, if we prepare those family docs to work in the healthcare system and fail to prepare the healthcare system to receive them, we will not have done our job. And so what's happening right now is we have new graduates in family medicine finishing their training, coming out into a system uh, where they have trained as members of teams. Uh, they are accustomed to working in team-based environments with other doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, dietitians, social workers, pharmacists. Uh, and there is no uh, there is no team for them to join uh, because the teams uh, in Ontario until uh, just a few weeks ago were frozen and had been uh, for quite some time other than in uh, rural communities. And the same is true in many other uh, jurisdictions across the country where their their teams are not connected to their local hospital. Uh, and the EMR that they have does not speak to the electronic record that the hospital has. So when their patient is discharged, they don't even know that the person was admitted in the first place and have no means of following up. Where there's uh, no clear community of family physicians working together to spell each other off. And so, it, you know, people will say it's not uncommon for us to hear, you know, my family doc took a two week vacation. And when I called the office to get an appointment, there was just a message on the machine saying, go to the eMERGE. I, I mean, we all want, of course, for everybody, to take, everyone to be able to take a vacation, but how do we arrange systems of cross coverage so that people can still have access? 
And in urban environments where use of walk-in clinics for reasons of convenience um, is high, you know, you go to see somebody, your family doc doesn't know anything about it, doesn't know what was done, doesn't know what was prescribed, et cetera. So it's an absence of systems and governance, absence of a scaffolding for primary care. And we designed it to be this way, way back in the 1960s. You know, the famous uh, uh, negotiations between Tommy Douglas and the physicians of Saskatchewan ended up in an arrangement where Physicians would be paid by the public programs across Canada eventually, uh, but that they would remain independent contractors, independent practitioners. So every family doc in the, in the classic Canadian setup is an independent entrepreneur. And that's got some advantages, presumably, but it's got some serious drawbacks when what you're trying to do is actually build a system uh, that uh, works together in concert to improve health. Well, I feel there's been like equal amounts of experimentation with governance, right? Like, you know, in Alberta, they had large number of regional health authorities. They rolled it up into one health authority. In Ontario, we have boards of directors for some of our organizations. We have the newly created Ontario Health. Is there any jurisdiction in Canada that has kind of figured out this governance question to really oversee a system and and have it performing towards an agreed set of goals? It's such a classic Canadian move, isn't it? We've got a problem. Let's shuffle the structure. So we go from one health authority to 12 health authorities to five health authorities. But actually, if you put those things, if you zoom in a bit, put them under the microscope, very often they really are about shuffling deck chairs in the governance of hospitals. And sometimes other institutions like long-term care or maybe even home care services, very infrequently have they truly uh, changed the structure of primary care. And so um, we, we remain in a situation where participation in these team-based models um, is inconsistent and optional in a system where the use of electronic records or which electronic record um, is uh, up to the individual practitioner, where physicians have no support for um, the kinds of quality care uh, that is required in the management of modern day chronic disease. Um, and so we're, we're actually, we haven't altered that fundamental relationship between insurer an independent contractor when it comes to primary care in Canada or very infrequently um, and always as an option and always uh, incompletely. And so um, the short answer to your question is no, I don't think we have any Canadian jurisdiction that's quote unquote got it right. Um, there are examples of whole provinces, for example, in New Brunswick experimenting around uh, single shared electronic records. That's potentially really exciting and a scaffolding that can um, help to improve the quality of care. Um, but we're not yet living in a healthcare system where I like to I make the comparison to a school. You know, if you move to some part of Canada and you got to put your kids in school, you just do a Google search and figure out what your local public school is and your kid automatically can go there because you live in the neighborhood. That's the end of the conversation. But we don't have that for family medicine. There's no uh, service that says to you, you know, you've landed in this neighborhood. Here's the name and phone number of your new family doctor or ideally your primary care team. Um, 
And so people are kind of left scrambling to try to sort things out for themselves. We see in um, urban areas like Toronto and Ottawa, the rise of the executive clinic with, uh, you know, concierge type service and cucumber water, but not necessarily linked to any improved quality of health outcomes. And the list goes on. It's a proliferation of different models with an absence of any kind of uh, clarity of purpose and any kind of system to underpin it. And the good news is that that can be fixed. Um, and so I'm, I'm optimistic uh, that as we look internationally at the post-COVID universe, Everyone from the WHO to the World Bank to the Gates Foundation, you name it, is talking about rebuilding health systems on a strong foundation of primary care and primary health care. So really thinking about how do we look at communities, how do we provide um, population level support, how do we make sure that everyone has easy access to a family doc or a team when they need it. And so I feel that this is our chance. Things have been destabilized. We see these healthcare workforce shortages that we're all reading about and hearing about and experiencing. Um, when things are unstable like this, is a good time to uh, to move in and think about how to uh, structure things differently. So, in addition to every person having access to primary care, what's gained? Like, what what what's the ultimate outcome or the ultimate value uh, derived by the patient and the system when? each person has that kind of attachment to a primary care provider? You know, it's such a critical uh, question because um, so much of what we do in healthcare, if we're honest, doesn't really improve health, (laughs) even at the level of the individual, but certainly at the level of the population. And so we need to be clear about what the purpose of a healthcare system is and should be. The purpose of a healthcare system should be to improve health, to improve the length and the quality of lives lived by uh, residents of Canada. And in the case of primary care, the evidence is super clear. Populations who have access to comprehensive, longitudinal relationship-based primary care have better outcomes, better, higher quality health outcomes at lower cost and greater equity than those that do not. And we see this internationally, We've seen it in comparative studies in the U.S., looking at states that have structured their systems differently. Um, You know, you can have a cardiologist for your heart problem and a pulmonologist for your lung problem and a left foot doctor for your left foot problem and a right elbow doctor for your right elbow problem. But unless you have somebody to bring those things together to accompany you on your journey through life and health and illness, um, you will not have the health outcomes that you need. And in fact... Uh, this is what we call the, the primary care paradox. Uh, it's been you know, written about. The paradox is that individual people who have their body part cared for by a specialist who specializes in that body part have better outcomes for that thing than if they are cared for by generalists. But whole people and whole populations who are cared for in primary care have better outcomes overall than whole populations that are cared for by accumulations of specialists. And what we like to say in primary care is the reason for that is the magical instrument that we use in family medicine. It is not a stethoscope. It is not a blood pressure cuff. It is not a scalpel. It is the relationship. And when I take a person into my practice, I consider that I am making a 30-year commitment to that person. 
and we are going to walk together through whatever comes. So as we, as has been written by the, you know, giants on whose shoulders I stand in primary care, we know the person before we know what their disease will be. That is a very different philosophy from a person, uh, an individual who specializes in a disease uh, process and, and therefore every person coming to them is going to have that thing. In primary care, we see it all and we see it all with you together over time. I am, that is in no way to denigrate the incredible need for specialty care in our healthcare systems. We can't function without specialty care, but you need that generalism as the foundation and you need that relationship at the base. And that is, um, that is the reason why we need to make those investments. There are better outcomes at the population level, and it's more affordable for the healthcare system. Plus, ask anybody who's ever had a great family doc, or for that matter, ask anyone who's ever had a family doc they didn't like. We all know, each one of us knows, what that can, uh, what, how that can make or break your experience of any number of diseases uh, or problems that life might throw our way. Yeah, so agree. I've had so many great primary care providers in my life, some for short times, some for longer periods of time, but I can I, I can almost measure my life by those relationships. Um, so let me ask you this. Did, did the pandemic kind of change that role of primary care provider? We're, we're so used to, as you say, you know, you have a problem, you, you ring up your, your provider and you make an appointment, obviously that was disrupted. Do we think differently about primary care today, um, having been through this and still going through this pandemic? Yes, I, I would say that uh, it has disrupted things and um, the, you know, the dust hasn't settled uh, yet. And so we don't know uh, quite where we're going to land. Most family physicians kept their offices open through the whole of this journey. Uh, but early on, uh, we were asked and told by governments and medical officers of health, transition to virtual as much as you can, and please focus as much as possible on only those things which are critical and urgent, and please participate as much as you can in the pandemic efforts. And so I was helping to run a hospital pandemic response for the first year and a half of the pandemic, and we relied very heavily on the family physicians in our community to help with testing and swabbing and mobile outreach to shelters and schools and then eventually of course vaccination in huge numbers and that was the case across the country but of course every every family doc who was out there participating in that effort because they had been asked to and wanted to help was a person who was not in their office seeing their patients with diabetes or what have you and so um, one of the things that I worry about and I don't think we yet have a, a strong sense of is how many um relationships were disrupted as the result of that, particularly uh, for people coming from equity deserving populations. So, you know, if you're a newcomer, um, uh, an essential worker in the Mississauga Peel region of the city, and uh, you were seeing your primary care team every three months for the management of your diabetes, and you canceled an appointment because you were sick or someone in your family was sick with COVID and then your family doctor canceled the next one because they were out vaccinating. Um, and then there was one that was converted to Zoom virtual visit, but you uh, couldn't get properly connected or whatever. 
what 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 is the state of that relationship now? We know that the numbers of visits have remained the same, recovered quite quickly, actually. And I can say, as a person working in the system right now, we are running like crazy to catch up. But um, I, I think there are relationships that have been uh, fractured and disrupted, or at least uh, become looser. And more people have uh, used the kind of McDonald's version of the online services where you just uh, check in and see whoever and get your prescription and check back out again. Um, and that can be convenient, but it's, it's, it doesn't offer that continuity of relationship. Uh, it doesn't, it's not an investment in, in a person's long-term health. It's a transactional way of approaching healthcare that won't serve us in the long term. So I, I do worry about all of that. Uh, and I don't know where it's all going to land yet. Um, not to mention, of course, all of the well baby checks that have uh, that went un, undone because of understandable reasons in the moment and all of the pap tests that didn't get done and all the mammograms that didn't get done and all the cancer, colon cancer screening that didn't get done and all the diabetes uh, follow-ups that didn't get done. There's a, there is a, a lot of chronic disease management even before we begin to talk about the mental health crises uh, of our country, all of which can only happen in family medicine and primary care. So the jury's still out on where this is going to go. How Do you have a sense of how Canadians are thinking about health today? Now, once again, uh, influenced by the pandemic, but other things too. Um, are you seeing anything in your practice um, that's indicating to you that Canadians are thinking about health differently. Yes. And it's such a rich uh, area for further exploration and research. I have colleagues that are doing research on exactly this question right now. Um, I will say that some of the, there have been some light bulbs of the pandemic that I think are um, terrific that we all can uh, hopefully benefit from um, in the future. One is around uh, the fact that mental health is uh, critical and part of healthcare. And we have seen uh, big government investments over the course of the pandemic in access to mental health services. You know, for way too long, these things were left outside of our public insurance plans and you had to rely on your employer-based coverage if you were lucky enough to have it um, to be able to access services. We've seen a huge movement of those services online. People can now access all across the country, internet-based and telephone-based cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, for um, any number of mental health issues. That's a big deal. And the, and the fact that people can access it directly um, and, that, uh, and that they can come back to their uh, primary care team for the ongoing care is so important. I don't see us ever undoing what has been done there. And I think we have seen a change in the public conversation about inclusion of mental health services. I count that as a win. Um, and I see people talking about it in very open ways that we didn't used to see. Uh, there's been a, a destigmatization, I think, in part because the, the toll has been so heavy on everyone over these last uh, two years. I will say, I don't think I have seen a single person in my office over the course of the pandemic, who in addition to whatever it was that brought them in, didn't also have a mental health concern of some kind. Um, because we've all been living through this just 
you know, unbelievably stressful time affects everybody differently. So there's that. Uh, a second really big disruptor has been, of course, virtual care. And we shouldn't overestimate, Jody, what we mean when we say virtual care, because the data are pretty clear, and not just in Canada, that all it really has meant in Canada is a whole lot of use of the telephone. So let's not, <laughs> yes. let's not overstate <laughs> the high techness of this revolution. But nevertheless, um, you know, whether it's been online video visits or whether it's been uh, telephone visits, like that has really opened up access in a variety of different ways. And I was just looking at some data from the U.S. Community Health Center environment last week. And, uh, you know, we have this prejudice around uh, digital and virtual uh, care that it uh, is by its nature inequitable and benefits people who, um, you know, have fancy iPhones and can hop on a Zoom call or whatever. And of course, if poorly designed, it can certainly, the digital divide can certainly uh, worsen inequities. But actually, as these colleagues from the U.S. were showing in their data, if you design it well, you can open up access for people who never could take a half a day off of work yeah. and come to see a doctor in person. So actually, even whether it's the you know people have, uh, most people have got some access to uh, a phone or um, an internet connection, uh, and if you figure out how to reach out to communities and then you figure out how to make it easy for people and you target um, in a good way, you know, the people who you know need care the most, you can actually lessen inequity in healthcare through the use of virtual care. You just have to care enough to think about that in the way that you design it. And I think that that's, you know, another way in which we're going to see huge uh, strides over the, the decades to come. And that stuff's not going anywhere. The question for me remains, how can we use those tools to strengthen that relationship that you and I have been talking about? You know, I, I should be able to get easy access to a, a virtual visit when that's the most appropriate thing with my own provider or healthcare team. I shouldn't have to go outside of that team to get it. And um, that's going to require some rejigging of our systems. Um, and when the best way to deal with my problem is an in-person visit, I should be offered that. I will say as a family doc that I have experienced some not insignificant frustration um, around people getting booked in either because of their own preference or because the system pushed it uh, in this direction uh, or because of my own lack of clarity about the reason for their visit. You get on the phone with somebody and they say, I've got ab you know, abdominal pain. I mean, there's no way I can assess that over the phone. Right. I need to see you. I need to examine you. You know, I, I think maybe my blood pressure is high. Like we need to, so just thinking about how do we sort out, this is an area that's ripe for exploration. What are the kinds of issues and concerns that should go straight to a phone call, straight to a video visit, straight to an in-person visit, straight to a nurse, straight to a pharmacist, straight to a physio, not to an in-person visit with the doctor? And what are the ones where actually automatically, you know, kid with a fever, that needs, that needs to be seen today and it needs to be seen in person and it needs to be seen by a member of the team that follows that kid so that we can follow it up later. That's what a high-functioning system would look like. That's what we should be aiming for. Yeah, I agree. It is It is exciting. Obviously, it's been a really difficult period, but as you, I think you said this yourself, with these difficulties, 
hopefully comes an opportunity to bring fresh thinking, new experiences, uh, patients thinking differently about their role in the system. Um, hopefully that that's creating some new uh, fertile ground uh, to really reimagine how, how primary care can work. Does the buck ultimately stop at the provincial legislature or, or if there's a listener and they're like, yeah, like I want to see these changes, like who do they call? Who's ultimately responsible or, or, or has um, the best opportunity to, to influence the direction of the system? Well, it's interesting because the um, the current federal government, the Liberal Party of Canada, included in its platform a commitment to a family doctor or every or a primary care team for every Canadian. And I confess, when I read the platform, I was in equal measure overjoyed to see that commitment because it is indeed what we need and horrified at the notion that anybody thought that could be done from Ottawa. (laughs) So I think we've got, you know, and we come back to the governance question, you know, and of course there are many things that the federal government can do to enable that. And and, and it's not just about more money uh, for healthcare. Um, And there's a, a huge role for the federal government in advancing that agenda, but actually ultimately the decisions about the on the ground delivery of health services when it comes to primary care are made at the provincial and territorial level. And uh, this is where we come back to the governance dilemma. I've heard hospital CEOs and health system leaders kind of wring their hands saying, how do we engage primary care? We've got people coming to the hospital, to the emergency department with preventable um, complications of chronic disease or whatever. And we don't, we, you know, how do we bring primary care to the table in quotes and have them have uh, primary care participate in the solutions that the health system needs? And the answer is like, there's no number to call because we don't have an infrastructure. So if you can bring a primary care clinician to the table, you know, show me one family doctor, I'll show you one family doctor. That person represents pretty much exactly themselves. And so the trick is, and we are seeing this in the in British Columbia, in the divisions of family practice, in Alberta, in the networks that are being built there, um, in Ontario with the Ontario health teams, like slowly, slowly, these movements across the country to try to build a scaffolding that the individual family doc in a strip mall or on a second floor office above a dry cleaning store or, you know, uh, even in a small team or in a big team with an interprofessional group can have some way of uh, something to plug into that allows them to then uh, interface with the other parts of the health system. I mean, it's not really fair to think that they would have until now. They haven't been given the opportunity. They haven't been given the supports and the structures. All the resources have gone to hospitals. And uh, policymakers have been very happy that family docs just build a build a system and uh, and do their thing. And so we're on a journey, I think, to 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 get to that level of governance. And I think that the coming back to your question about what can the individual person or uh, citizen or resident do, absolutely, the answer is call your MPP, <laughs> call your MPP, and demand not only a family doc or a team in your neighborhood that will take care of your needs and the needs of your aging parents and of your kids, um, but a, a 
family doc who will have access to home care services when that's what you need and specialists who will return their phone calls from the local hospital because I can assure you that that's not, not always the case. And a person who's on an electronic health record that interfaces with the records in the rest of the system. I mean, those yes. are policy decisions that need to be made at the at, at a higher level. We cannot rely on independent business people to do all of that. It's not a reasonable or fair expectation of them. They went to med school because they wanted to take care of sick people. So we have to build on, on those skills. Yeah, the data challenge is equally enormous, but I, I agree with you to, to expect primary care provider or family doc working in an office on their own to somehow solve that 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 problem uh, is, isn't really going to work. I, I do worry, though. I mean, we've been kind of at it a lot. Um, geez, for, for as long as I, I've been involved in healthcare in Ontario, We've been trying to crack this nut. And well, I would say like for sure there's been some progress, but I don't think anybody would say we've we've really achieved a, a vision of either a, an easily accessible health record that has the materially important things in it that, that, that you need. Um, it's proven to be really um quite quite a pernicious problem in, in Ontario and I often scratch my head it's like it's like why why is this so hard it's so hard and you know the answer is it's that classic public policy problem of many hands you know everybody owns a piece of it and nobody owns the whole and including and this is something we haven't yet touched on in our discussion today the role of the private for-profit sector because most of the companies that own those uh, electronic health records and electronic medical records products that are being used across the healthcare system um, are not, you know, uh, I mean, they're incredibly powerful and they're not necessarily um, in it for the public policy goals that you and I would wish for. <laughs> so we have to be real about who the players are and um, whose job it is to regulate the, um, the market and what the requirements need to be around uh, you know, ability for interfacing and for information to flow around who owns the data and who can access the data, whether that's for the purposes of clinical care or whether it's for the important purposes of quality improvement or research. I say this as an academic, you know, trying to extract the data so that we can um, ask important questions that will affect the, the future of our healthcare systems. You know, um, you can get buried in uh, in legal agreements and never resurface. So it's a you know these are these are uh, it's a multi-player environment in which our only hope is for governments to set super clear objectives and requirements um, and regulate it and uh, enforce. Uh, those uh, those goals, you know, and they should be pretty basic, right? Everyone should be able to access their own data. You should be able to see your lab results or your specialist report. You should be able to share that information with the people in your school of care, including your, you know, your family carers or whoever is, in, you know, in your naturopath, like whoever you deem to be your, your circle of care. Um, your family physician should be able to access whatever is happening like across your whole journey in the healthcare system so that they can support you and play that quarterback role. 
and uh, researchers who are doing appropriate, you know, ethical research should be able to access de-identified data in a safe manner to do that research. And your uh, own clinicians should be able to use um, to, to have that data fed back to them in ways that will help them to improve the quality of their care. Like I need to know who in my practice is overdue for a mammogram so that I can reach out to them and book it. And if I can't get that information in a timely fashion and in a way that is useful to me as that, that works in my workflow of my day, then there's something seriously wrong. So it, like, it actually shouldn't be that hard and uh, no one should be able to sell your data to big pharma or anybody else. <laughs> and we should be in a situation where we can, um, use the use the data for the for the betterment of the health of the individual and in the public interest and actually that's a governance issue and a, a regulatory issue that is perfectly within the grasp and that is actually where the federal government for example can really help um, because it may not be reasonable to expect every single provincial and territorial government to do that work 13 times over it's probably much better to do it once and do it well um, at the federal level. Well, I certainly agree that some leadership is necessary. Um, we've been at this for too long and we've tried even projects within the the hospital system, fully within the public system, have also kind of dragged on to um, okay ends. <laughs> But not, not certainly not what, what you talked about, where it's like, yeah, like the people, the right people have the access to the right information that patients can drive who accesses uh, their, their information and, and articulate who their, their circle of care is, you know, reasonable uh, access for, for quality improvement purposes, uh, similarly appropriate access for, for research purposes. Uh, I, I don't think that, that that exists today, at least in, in Ontario, anywhere. No, I don't think it does anywhere, but let's, um, let's view that as an opportunity for the, for, uh, for the federal government. I mean, it's not for lack yeah. of conversation about the issues or a lack of understanding about the issues. And I do think, I mean, here's the good news. Uh, at least people are talking about primary care. I mean, it yeah. used to be that when you said healthcare, you meant hospitals. And when you said electronic records, you meant hospitals, it's not you, but one meant hospital systems in the, yeah. in the Canadian environment, you know, that people, people didn't even think about family medicine and primary care. It's a small slice of the budget. Everything goes into the fix it shops. None of it goes upstream. And that's before even we start talking about the social determinants of health or like the, the things that really affect whether people will be healthy around their, um, their income and their housing and their access to education and clean water and all of the rest of those things. But like even just can you see someone for the management of your chronic disease and early diagnosis um, of your cancer and uh, ongoing support of your mental health and um, a coordination function among the various uh, parts of the healthcare system, like that wasn't even part of the public conversation when I came into the world of Canadian health policy 20 years ago. And so now everyone's figured out that there's this thing called primary care and it's got this magic impact on population health and health system budgets. And everybody would like to figure out how to engage it that's i would say very significant progress um so now we just have to uh, 
begin to shift the resources and begin to shift the emphasis um, into this into this area. Agreed. Agreed. There there been a tough, incredibly difficult uh, last couple of years, but uh, but there are some some exciting opportunities in front of us. Um, speaking of uh, things long discussed in healthcare, do you think we're going to see pharma care? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, um, I have a presentation, a, a talk that I have given well, more than once to academic audiences called Pharmacare, getting used to disappointment. <laughs> and it, it charts, it charts the history of Canadian efforts, uh, for Pharmacare, um, along the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, uh, because I feel, I feel that I have experienced each, you know, in in equal measure, uh, anger and denial, etc. And I think, um, I think we will see something. Um, I don't know whether that's something we will see will be what I would call pharma care. Um, and I and I, I say this because I, fundamentally, as a clinician, I have a very clinical definition of pharma care. To me. Pharmacare is where I can write a prescription for my patient and I do not have to ask whether they have coverage and I do not have to worry about whether they will take it every day or every other day um, or split the pill in half. And I do not have to uh, call the pharmacist to figure out what the cheapest available option is or whether there's a rebate coupon and I do not have to apply to the pharmaceutical company for compassionate access. I can just work with the person in front of me to figure out what the best uh, treatment is for their problem and write the script and not worry about it. And I don't, I think we are a distance from that. Um, I am encouraged by the recommitment to a national formulary that we saw in the supply and confidence agreement between the liberals and the NDP recently. Um, But, you know, and a national formulary or a list of essential medicines um, would be a really great thing to have because at least then we could all agree on what everybody should have access to in Canada. But a list is not the same as coverage. <laughs> it's just a list. It's just a list of the things that we can't all access. And so, um, you know, at a certain point, I do um, I do feel, uh, as many advocates for pharmacare do, a little bruised by um, uh, by how difficult it has been to move this agenda. And um, uh, I would say that I am cautiously optimistic uh, and that I have also felt that way before. <laughs> right, right. Okay, last question for you. Um you're hosting a speaker series about the future of medicine, and you've invited just a, a total diversity of guests, artists, public health professionals, not just family docs uh, to, to participate in this series. Um, why is it important to look across disciplines, even in medicine? I think uh, as we look at this uh, healthcare workforce that, um, like everyone across all sectors, has had a really bruising time these last couple of years. Um, that we need to look up and out a little bit for our healing. 
Um, and I am of the view that the cure for burnout is not just rest. The cure for burnout is purpose and inspiration. And that the way to find that in, um, in the work that we do in healthcare is to um, tap into the arts and political activism and um, sociology and um, all kinds of other disciplines to learn about how other people would tackle the problems that we're facing. Um, it may be that part of the reason why you and I have said so many times in this conversation, we're kind of having the same chat that we would have had five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago in some ways um, is because we've all just been talking to each other. So maybe it's time to talk to somebody else and see whether we can um, bring a little, uh, bring a little light into the conversation. So that's what we're trying to do with this um this uh, speaker series um, is to uh, open up to other ways of thinking about some of the problems that we're facing. And um, also because like you with your podcast, I just think it's fun to talk to smart people and hear what they have to say. It's never, it's never time ill spent. Yes, absolutely. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for spending this time with me. And thank you so much for choosing medicine. I just can't imagine the Canadian medical system without you. So thank you. Thanks, Jody. It's very kind. <laughs>